Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word. We ask that you guide and lead us as we examine this. We just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Numbers chapter 36. And the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the son of Micah, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the son of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the princes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord is commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelopheth had our brother and to his daughters. And if they marry to any of the sons of other tribes of the children of Israel, then shall their inheritance be taken from the inheritance of our fathers, and shall be put into the inheritance of the tribe whereunto they are received. So shall it be taken from the lot of our inheritance. And when the Jubilee of the children of Israel shall be... shall be then their inheritance be put into the inheritance of the tribe whereunto they are received, so that shall their inheritance be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. We're going to stop there because we're listening to a complaint, and it's not un unfamiliar to us to have them complaining about something. But this one they're going to determine is a pretty legitimate complaint. If you remember back in Genesis, uh, excuse me, Numbers 27, the daughters of Zilophehad came to Moses and complained that they weren't going to get an inheritance because their father had no sons. And they go, it's not fair. And so Moses went before God and, he, and God told him they're right, they should have an inheritance. And so you've got, what was it, four daughters I think it was? Let me go back there and double check. I think it was four. Yeah. And let's see. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five daughters. Mala, Noah, Hagloth, Hagla, Milka, and Tirzah. They came to them and said, it's not fair that we're not getting any inheritance because our father passed away and he didn't have any children. And so Moses went to God and God says, they speak correctly. And we, if you remember way back then, we talked about even at that time, God was raising the position of women within the people of Israel. Because it wasn't uncommon for the women to own nothing. Even back then, they were considered basically the property and they didn't they didn't have any rights and God says no it, it's right that these five girls get their father's inheritance so we see God agreeing that they that they should get it and the people and even in here we're not seeing them argue that the girls don't deserve the inheritance but they have a different concern that when these girls get married having property that whoever they get married to if especially if they're from another tribe that land would go to that new tribe because it was a paternal relationship. You, uh, today, uh, Israel later on around Jesus' time and beyond got into a maternal, it was all tracked by, by the, by the by woman, the 
But in this particular time, it was still being paternal. And so that meant that if they married, they brought property in, but that property would then become the husband's property. So these guys are making a complaint saying, you know, hey, you know, we're only going to have so much land, and why should some other tribe get part of our inheritance? Okay, and you see, do you see what the question they're saying is? You know, we're from the tribe of Manasseh. Why should, you know, the tribe of Benjamin get part of our land up here? So it's a pretty big concern in their case. You know, not that it represents a huge block of land that these five girls own, but it is land that could potentially be taken away from their inheritance. Their father. Their, their, fa their, their father's lot that they're dividing up between the five of them. And remember that every 50 years, everything was returned to the owner. So that if you sold your land in Israel, you didn't have enough money and you had to sell your land, at the end of 50 years, on the year of Jubilee, your land was returned back to you. You never lost your land permanently under God's economy. Even if you went totally broke and you had to sell your land, it would come back to your family. And that meant that if you're real close to the year of Jubilee, your land was basically worthless because that meant they only had one or two years that they could use your land. And if it was right after the year of Jubilee, your land was worth a lot because they were going to have the use of it. Basically, even though you quote-unquote sold it, it was more of a, a rent, a long-term lease. I'm going to lease you my land for however many years till Jubilee because it would be returned. This was an issue that they're concerned with. If, if these girls get married and it goes to these new husbands of theirs, then they might lose their land to some other tribe. Here you have this situation. They're coming and they're going to Moses. We've got a problem. Again. <laughs> Again, yeah. The girls had a problem. Now we have a problem. You know, these, these single unmarried girls can make this land go to some other, other tribe. The way the system worked is the, everybody in that tribe got a portion of the land. Okay, an equal portion. One, one male, one, one portion of the land. It belonged to the tribe of Manasseh, but it then belongs to the family within that tribe. Okay. We get into the, the, the portion of like the birthright. If you had four boys, you would divide your land, you would divide your possessions into five parts. And the eldest child would get a double portion of it. Now, that double portion for the eldest child was not for him to use however he wanted to use it. That extra portion was for him to support the family, the brothers that he has in his family, if something was to go wrong, he was used to use that money to support them. The eldest child got a double portion and because he was the patriarch of the family, he was responsible to help anybody else in his family that needed help. If Ruth had not been around, yes, they would have, they would have bought her land and they would have had to support her in the process because there's no way, she already commented, she, she was no too way. old. She was too old to have any kids, so they would have been buying the land to keep it in the family. And this is what always happened. The nearest kinsman, if it was a younger woman involved, he would have a child by her, and that land would go back to that child who was considered child of that individual, as in the case of Ruth. Ruth's child belonged to Naomi, right. and was considered 
was considered the child of whoever Ruth was married to, which was Boaz, uh, Boaz uh, was Naomi's son, and the land would have belonged to him, and Boaz paid for that land to be part of his, and he used it until that child grew up. So in the case of Boaz, and uh, they had Jesse, and Jesse was the one that would get that land that belonged to Naomi when he came of age. And Boaz, and Boaz would have kept it in his family until such time as it was time to go. So many provisions to make sure that people didn't lose out. And if you got so poor that you had to sell your land, you know, yes, you might have to wait 50, the most you'd have to wait is 50 years to get your land back, so maybe your, maybe your son got it instead of you, but the land returned back to the individual who owned it. And God said all through here, he's going to take care of his people. He's going to take care of his people. And this is the thing that God does for us. He makes sure that he provides. And we look at the rules that God put in place for the poor. I mean, what do, what do we do in America? We hand out money to people to make them lazier. And God says, uh, go out to the fields and get your butt in gear and go, go glean the fields, you know, pick the corners. You know, the, the food is out there, but you have to get up and do something to get it. Here we see the provisions that God put in place for people. Oh, yeah. Saying, we're going to provide for you. As long as you can do anything, there was a provision for you to get up and do something. And here God is saying, the, the children of Israel are saying, we don't want to lose our inheritance. And how often do we as Christians think about this? We have an inheritance with God. We are his children. We're going to have all of God's riches given to us. And how often do we think about the idea that we might lose our, lose our inheritance if we don't treat things right? And God, Jesus even said, those who use what the gifts he's given to you will have more added to you. When he talked about using those talents and he says, you use you, you, Use the ten talents well, you will rule over ten cities. I really believe he's meaning literally when we get into heaven and the new heaven and earth that we're going to rule over cities. Because you start looking and it is amazing when you start getting into, and we talked a lot about this in the Revelation class, the new heaven and new earth, and you get into Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and you look at the commerce and stuff that's going on in the new heaven and new earth, there's much more going on than we understand. There's plenty of verses that talk about us dwelling on this earth, running things, but we have the new Jerusalem to be able to go into where God dwells. And it's an amazing thing when you start looking at what is in store for us. Much, much more than we really understand, I think. The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, he has this picture of heaven being everything that's good in this world intensified, okay? And he keeps bringing on everything that's there. They get into a, a, a nar different Narnia that's better than what they had. And they go a little further in. They go into a, a better one. And then they keep going. And eventually they come to the place where all these different worlds that he, that he, that he pr proposes all come together in God's kingdom. And it's kind of an amazing thought because science is now showing us that there is the idea of multiple universes that are pressing against each other. You know what? If that's true, and I do believe it is true, God's still the creator of all those other universes that don't touch each other, and he's got some plan in those universes that he's instigating. And he even brought the same principle up in, various, in his 
uh, space trilogies stories. Uh, he understood this whole idea of multiple universes and a God who is bigger than anything we can imagine. And we think about that. God, how big is God? How big is our God? He is in charge. If there are multiple universes pressing against one another that don't interact, he's still bigger than both, all of those. And you start thinking about how big is God? You know, most of us think in a three-dimensional world. God, God encloses time, which is the fourth dimension. How many more dimensions are there? We don't know. But he's bigger than all the dimensions and brings them all together. How big is our God? He's bigger than anything we can think of. No matter how big you can think of God being, where I can think of him being all the dimensions plus all the other universes that are thumping up against ours, and he's still bigger than all of that. How big is God? Very big. You know, just, just as I've brought up, you know, God is outside of time. He encompasses time. He is present in all the time at the same time. Okay? And we've covered that. He is with Adam and Eve. He's with us. And he's already standing at the, at the, millennial, at the end of the millennial kingdom because he's outside of time. He's, that's how big he is. He's not just everywhere present. He's every time present. How big is God? And here we've got God saying, I've got a plan for everything that can possibly happen. Isn't it wonderful that nothing surprises God? That has got to be our greatest comfort is God already knows how to solve everything that's coming up. There's nothing that surprises him, nothing new under the sun. He's never going to be able to, he's never going to say, well, gee, I didn't know that was going to happen. Let's, let's make this even simpler, even if it's not ISIS. Can God take... Could God take evil out of this world? Yes. Absolutely, he could. Now, when somebody tells me they want evil taken out of this world, I will go, okay, then we're going to pray that God will take your free will away from you so that you cannot make any decision that would hurt somebody. I have never found anybody who wants me to make that prayer because they don't want to lose their right to do what they want to do. Can God take evil out of this world? Absolutely. He could take our free will away from us. Will he? No. Because then he would have autotroms, which he didn't create in the first place. And the only way to stop all evil would be to stop all actions that go against God's true and perfect will. Because why do we have sickness? Adam and Eve sinned, and, and and, which started the pollution of the gene pool. Then we've added pollution and variables that have helped destroy the gene pool. So we'd have to go back and stop all the changes that, that polluted the gene pool, all the, all the things that polluted the, the world. Could he do it? Yes, he could, but he won't. Because man has a free will. He, we had the free will to go out and get drunk and drive the car and, and run the family off the road and kill half the family because of our bad decision. We have, the, we have the capacity to go shoot a gun up in the air and have the bullet drop down and, and kill some, some strange and stray person. All these people who God's hand is there. Can God change it? Could he change it? Absolutely. He's powerful enough. But he won't because of the fact that he gave us a will and an ability to make a decision. And this is something that's critical for us to understand. And, and it's hard for the people who want to rail against God. Well, we must have a weak God. Well, no, because you don't want yourself to be, to be reined in, to be made to do what's right all the time. 
And even us that are walking with God don't really, in one sense, want to lose our freedom to do what we want. Even though we don't necessarily want to hurt somebody, we also don't want to be said, well, you have to do what's right all the time and you have no choice. And this is the answer to those who say, well, well why doesn't God rein in all this evil because of the free will? The other question is, you know, when, when God allows bad things or what we consider bad things to happen to us, is it really bad? And that begins to be kind of a strange problem in and of itself. You know, just because I think something was bad, five years from now, I may look back and say, man, that was the best thing that happened to me because it did something else and prepared me for something. There's an old Chinese proverb where the story goes, you know, this guy went out and got run over by, by a wagon. and go, oh, that's terrible. He goes, oh, no, because I got, I got run over by the royal family and they paid me real well. Oh, that was good. Oh, no, because then the robbers came, the bandits came and, and robbed me of my wealth. And, oh, that was terrible. Oh, no, this happened, you know. You know. But you think about it, how much is our story good and bad dependent on where we are in our life looking back at it? And we say, well, what we think was bad when we're going through it, we look back and say, well, maybe it wasn't the greatest thing, but man, did I learn something or did it prepare me for something else? So that even gives us a pretty hard definition of what's bad, what's good, uh, what's evil, as, as, as was said, you know. There's certain things that are evil. And, but when we look back over our life and we go, man, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was because it did this. And as the old story goes, uh, you know, a picture or a tapestry has to have darkness and dark spots in it to make things stand out. If you've made a picture with nothing but light and no dark, it'd be a pretty miserable picture. You have to have the dark to contrast it. You have to, and it's going to be when we get to see the picture that God has put together for this world, we may be amazed at what we see when we get to heaven and see it from his perspective and see our life from his perspective and then see how our life interacted with everybody else's lives and made a beautiful picture and story that wouldn't have been the same if it wasn't for maybe our hard part of that story. Um, I don't know if any of you have read Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Wing, but Frodo and, Frodo and, How, and, uh, and um, Samwise were talking at the very end, and they're going, I kind of wonder what kind of story we are in, because they're telling each other the, the stories, and they're going, you know, we're still in the same story that goes, goes back to, to, to Bilbo, which goes back to this next guy, and the guy previous, and the guy previous, and you know, we all are in that story. It's the same type of story we live in. There's the redemption story of God throughout all of history, and we're just players in that story. Just players in that story, and we don't know what part of the story we play. Think of any great literature that you read. The true good stories are all a picture of Jesus. You have to have your, your hero has to have everything set against them as if they can't win, and seem like they're losing, or it's a very poor story. If you have somebody who wins all the time, you know, you go like, what a, what a boring story. <laughs> you know, you want the hero, the hero must win, good must win at the end, but you want your hero to have these up and downs and make it look like they're not going to be successful. And that was Jesus' story through his lifetime. It looked like he wasn't going to win, and then he's, then he's killed, and then he's resurrected. All the good stories have those elements within them. If you've ever watched a movie where the, where the producer or the director decided he wanted to make the bad win, 
you always leave that movie, and there's very few of them that they're made that way because they know it doesn't make a good story. But the handful of them that are out there, you leave the theater disappointed because bad is not supposed to win. Mm -hmm. We know that instinctively. Nobody ever taught us that the good has to win. It is just part of what God has put in us. And when we read a story or see a movie or a play and good does not triumph, we leave the movie dissatisfied. Call artsy. Well, that's an artsy type attitude. It's where the guy gets, but it's supposed to be the guy gets the girl and he wins. But that's just the way it is. I mean, the, you're a story supposed to have a, especially if you have a good character. The good character is supposed to win. The bad character is supposed to get their punishment. Right. Okay. And this is something that we look at. It's just instinctive to us because we look at God's story, and God's story is He wins in the end. Even though we go through and we see all these places where it looks like good's not going to win, at the very end we know that good wins. God is going to win. And you have to have some of these stories in there that and it looks like they're not going to win. It comes out that they win. And we want to be able to look at this. God's story. He's got a plan. He's got a schedule. And he's got it all set out. And the greatest thing for us Nothing surprises God. And this gives us our great peace that no matter what happens in our life, it's God's plan that's being placed. God has allowed sin to, though, because people have the right to make their decisions. I mean, homosexuality isn't even the worst thing out there when people get into sexual sins. When you get into some of these other things that they do, they're just as bad. Bestiality. I mean, there's all kinds of really crazy things that people do out there. It's because of the depravity of man that God, that God doesn't like it. He'll judge it. He'll punish it. All kinds of abominations out there that, are, that God allows to happen just because he's going to let men make decisions. Now, that doesn't mean he's not knocking on their heart, convicting them. But there is a point where somebody gets so evil that they totally ignore God. And God will only let them go so far before he takes them, takes them home. You look at somebody like a Hitler, who's just out killing people indiscriminately, as far as we're concerned, and God's saying, no, this isn't going to happen forever, and eventually he stops what's going on. And we've seen this over and over again all through history. You see somebody like Nebuchadnezzar, who is a very evil man when he conquers Israel. Now, God gets hold of his heart. But you read the history of Nebuchadnezzar before Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get involved in his life. And he is a vicious, sadistic ruler. Okay, Almost as bad as Nero, lighting people on fire and hanging them and just leaving them there and... You know, he is a vicious person, and all of a sudden, God gets hold of his heart. Again, God is in control, and this should give us great comfort that no matter what happens to me, or you, or anybody else, God is in control. Yeah. He's in control of the lost person who's not one of his children because he is the sovereign of this world. There's always something out there that is moving against Israel. There's always something out there moving against God. There's... One of the things, and I heard it just preached recently, in, uh, that there's always a candidate for the Antichrist sitting out there because Satan doesn't know when Jesus is returning either. He doesn't know when the rapture of the church is, so he has to have 
several people out there that are always ready to become the Antichrist. Damn. It makes a lot of sense because Hitler was, really was an Antichrist. And Stalin. Okay, and Stalin and, 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 and all these people have been evil enough that if it was the right time, they could have been possessed and become the Antichrist. So out there, there's always somebody in the wings ready to be, maybe not ready to be used, but that Satan is ready to use as the Antichrist that is evil enough to be the next one to step up. And who they are, who knows? But we see this over and over. You could go all the way back to, to Napoleon uh, pushing the envelope of evil. And we, we see it even to this day. Could it be somebody in ISIS? Yes. Could it be somebody that we don't know on the, on the immediate? Yes. Because Satan is out there. He doesn't know when Jesus is returning and the rapture of the church is any more than Jesus did when he was here. Otherwise, he would make sure things happened before that happened. All right, let's, let's continue here. So the, the children, they're going in the year of Jubilee. If, our, if these girls get married to somebody in another tribe, then in the year of Jubilee, our land will go to them. So this is a valid concern from the heads of the, this family of the, of the tribe of Manasseh. We don't want to lose even a small part of our land. And that makes sense. Nobody wants to lose their family land. And so in verse 5, Moses commanded the children of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, the tribe of the sons of Joseph has said well. You know, he actually goes, this is a valid complaint. For a you know, change. Huh? For a change. For a change. You know, normally he's saying this is a dumb thing to complain about, but here he's going, okay, this is a valid complaint. We don't want, you don't want to lose your, your property. And so in verse 6, this is the thing which the Lord does command concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, let them marry whom they think best, only to the family of the tribe of their fathers shall they marry. So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel removed from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So basically he says they can marry anybody they want as long as they belong to the tribe of Manasseh. All right. And I love the way this actually reads in the Hebrew. It says, they can marry whoever seems pleasant to them. <laughs> I really like the way it was phrased, you know. Whomever they want, but as long, you know, it basically says if they, if they like the guy and want to get married, they can get married to anybody they want, but they have to be of the tribe of Manasseh. Amen. They're able to marry whoever they want within the tribe of Manasseh so that the land did not get taken away from the tribe of Manasseh. That's a pretty simple thing. It limits them. They've only got about 40,000 different people to choose from, but, or 60,000, whatever, whatever the tribe of Manasseh was, but they still had plenty of choices. And if they didn't want to get married within the tribe of Manasseh, they didn't have to get married. The land would go back to the sisters or, or their husbands. But again, God provides for things. They had a pretty good... It wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, yes, they were limited. They didn't have a choice of the whole... 700,000 men in, in, in uh, marriable aid men in Judah, but uh, in Israel, but they still had a very large pool of men to choose from. But you know, this is not unusual. If you've been in a, if you go to churches long enough, it's, uh, I saw this really big in, in College Park when we first moved there. Almost all the families were interrelated, not because they had to, but their kids were raised with those kids. They went to Sunday school with them, they went to youth group with them. You know, many of them kind of just fell in love with people that they hung around with. 
And basically they're saying, you're going to be in Manasseh, pick one of the guys in Manasseh. You know, don't, don't go traveling out to some other tribe and try to, the, to pick up your man. There's plenty of choices here is what, what he's saying. Yes, there was plenty of choice. I mean, 60, you know, 40 to 60,000 guys. I mean, out of that, there should have been somebody that they would have been attracted to. And yes, it's kind of restrictive. You know, you don't go out and, and get into any, any, anywhere. But we see this even in Jesus' time. How many of the Levites married another Levite? Okay, we see that with Elizabeth and, and Zechariah. They were both of the tribe of Levi. Not necessarily the same subfamily and everything, but they were, and this happened over and over again. In Ruth, we talked about Ruth. Most of the people there in Bethlehem married somebody from Bethlehem. You know, it was just the way it was, and it wasn't so long ago that that was true even in, in our world. You didn't usually go out five cities away and find somebody to get married. You married somebody within the township or within a very close distance of where you lived. You didn't, you know, the idea, number one, your family stayed close anyway. And so your parents would know the, know the, know the, know the child that, you know, that you were kind of interested in and know whether it was going to be a good match or not. Uh, extended family that lived right there together. And almost everybody in those small towns were related to each other. Even in the early parts of America, it was not uncommon for almost everybody in a, in a town to eventually be related to each other. Yeah, you'd have a new blood come in every once in a while. You know, somebody would move in and buy a piece of property or something. But for the most part, it was a family place. It's only been really strange in our, in our days as transportation has become easier and easier. Uh, most of us in this room are old enough to remember that this world used to seem like a pretty small place or a very large place. The idea of going overseas. Many people never went overseas and it was a big deal because you either went by boat or in the middle of the 19th century you might have you flown over. But it was, and I remember a big deal just making a phone call, long distance phone call was a huge deal. It had to be on the weekends when the rates were low. And you didn't talk very long. Uh -uh. You know, I remember when all of, us, all of us would be gathered around the phone to talk to Grandma, and we were like, Hi, Grandma, how are you, that big person? <laughs> you know, that phone call was not to be more than five or ten minutes, and that was an expensive phone call, and it was done once, once a month or once every other month if you did it that often. Now we think of no, nothing about calling overseas or to another country and making, making calls across the United States because they're free. They're part of, our, part of our plans. Small the world has gotten quickly. Mm -hmm. How quick the world has gotten very small. And now because of how small it is, we get people that are going across countries just to get married because they've been talking to somebody on the telephone for, for months. Or the computer. Or on the computer or whatever. You know, going, going from city to city to get married and leaving your family is not an uncommon thing this, in this day and age. You know, 100 years ago, you didn't do it. Yeah. You, if you married the person in the next town over, you were kind of like something was wrong with you having to go outside of your town <laughs> to go find somebody. You know, and we laugh about it, but it really was. If we think about it, especially those that are on the older side, it was kind of a, like, what's wrong with the people in our town? You know, what's wrong with the people here? Why do, why do you have to go over yonder to go find somebody? <laughs> I, one thing I think about when I watch the Andy Griffith show, you know, they talk about Mount, Mount Pilot. We've got to go over to the big city, Mount Pilot. 
And when you think about Mount Pilate, you know, even in that day, Mount Pilate wouldn't have been considered a city. But I lived in Maine where this kind of mentality happened, where people had not been more than 10 miles from their, town, their hometown ever in their life. Mm -hmm. People in their 60s and 70s had never been more than 10 miles from this town. And if you came in from outside of the state, much less having been anywhere in the world, you were, man, you were the adventurer. Mm -hmm. That was me. Okay. That wasn't so long ago that that was true everywhere. And so we're looking at this picture where God is saying, just stick around with family. Just stay with family. And verse 7 says, So shall the inheritance of the children of Israel uh, so shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel be removed from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter that possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be wife unto one of the family of the tribe of her father. So this isn't, this isn't just a rule that they're making for these five girls. He's saying any girl who gets the inheritance has to marry within her tribe. So she, she becomes restricted. The guys, because it's theirs and, it, and it's not going to go, can marry anybody they want because it will stay within their tribe. The girls had to stay within their tribe if they got the inheritance. Now, how often that happened was not very often. I mean, the guy had to die with no, no male descendants. And if you remember way back in 27, there was this whole long list. You know, it went to the brothers, then it went to the sisters, then if there were no sister, you know, he had no children, it went to his brother, and then, then to an uncle, you know, and there's a whole long list of who the next nearest kinsman was. And this is why when we get to the story of Ruth and Boaz, Boaz really wants to marry Ruth. He's, he's flattered that this young girl, fairly young girl, is picking him as a much older man, and he's got to say, well, I'm not, the, I'm not the first one in line to take your hand. We have to go and, and to the one who's next in line. Okay. And that's a guy that rejected it, you know, wanted the lamb but didn't want Ruth. You know what was beautiful about that to me, though, when I saw it wrong? He really fell head over heels in love with her. It sure seems and like it. And she really fell head over heels in love with him. Yeah. And even more so, she was totally crazy about her mother-in-law. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the more beautiful love stories out yes, there. And, is. you know, you get, you get that picture of Boaz coming in and saying, hey, who is, and you can almost picture him talking again, who's that beautiful girl out there? You know, she's uh, really good looking, you know, and he's saying, well, that's, you know, that's, that's uh, Naomi's uh, daughter-in-law. And at that time, you can almost picture him clicking off in his head, you know, let's see. I'm, I, there's one person between me and me and me and me and her. You know. But he's married. Yeah. So you got all this going on, and God is saying the daughter has to stay within their tribe. They can marry anybody they want, but they've got to stay within their tribe because God is saying we're going to protect the inheritance. God protects us. He has a plan for us. He has a great plan for us, and He's saying stay within the family and you know when we get unequally yoked as Christians we are causing so much problems in our life and in the life of our children and the life of our families for that matter because you end up with how are we going to raise these kids you know are we going to raise them as Christians or are we going to raise them as 
atheists or agnostics or whatever other religion is out there for them to choose from. The kids suffer because there's this confusion in their life. You suffer because you've got to make some hard decisions and usually end up fighting over who's going to do what or have hard feelings. Even if it's very easy to do, there's those problems yeah. that are involved with it. Or you end up with somebody, a Christian, marrying a non-Christian and being pulled away from the church, which almost always is what happens. You know, when I've done, when I've done my talks with people who are in that place, you know, and it's like, you know, well, I may be the one that's saved, but I go, yes, you might be the one in 1,000 people who actually have a success, but there's 999 chances that you're not going to be the one that pull, pulls them up. And it's not, that's not a gamble that I would like to be able to make. Nope. And we see too many times the Christian being pulled out of the Christian world. Now, whether they're Christian or not to start with, is a whole other story sometimes, but they get pulled out of that world into, into some other, usually non-Christian lifestyle. This is something that God is, keeps telling us. Do not be unequally yoked. Do not get involved with the world because the world will almost always tear us down. It will almost always take us away from our inheritance, give us, take us away from the rewards that God wants to give us because of being pulled away from him. And it's even hard within a equally yoked relationship sometimes, especially if the person's not as excited about it, God as you are at the time. But there's this idea of when you're really excited about something, you can be have a lot of cold water thrown on you real yeah. fast and possibly be pulled away completely from what it is that you're doing just it. because people aren't as excited. And we've all been there, whether it's with God or with some new, new thing that we're doing, you know, getting into some new sport or new hobby, and, and everybody kind of looks at you, would you just shut up about it? I'm tired of hearing it. This is the problem that people have. They're, they're striving for something outside of God, and when they reach it, yeah. they find out that it isn't the answer, whether it is trying to reach for money or success or even a happy family. You, you get to it, you finally obtain whatever it is you think is going to make you happy, and if it's not God... You're going to find that it doesn't make you happy. And when we get old enough and walk on with God enough, then, then we do come to that place of, if God's not in it, there's no joy in it. No. And I've heard testimony after testimony of guys who have made their millions of dollars. They've got successful. They've sold their business. You know, they worked, worked 100 hours a, a week to build their business. They sold it for millions of dollars, and then they get there and go, and there's no joy in it. There was no value in it. Because... Pascal said there's a God-shaped vacuum in all people and only God can fill it. That's right. And we find that out and at some point in our life we'll find that it doesn't matter what successes is that we have, if it's not God, it's not going to fill. But this is the point that's out there is no matter what we're chasing after, if it's not God, that's right. it's not going to satisfy. And then when we chase God, we can get all the other blessings besides and they're not what we put our life in, and they are satisfaction because our satisfaction is actually in God. And this is what's happened in many places that people chase after success. They might try to chase after it through marriage. They might try to chase after it from just working their styles basically to death. And they finally get there, 
and find out that it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Having a million dollars just isn't what it's cracked up to be. Because sometimes, yeah, number one, you're not satisfied because you always want more. But then you get to the place of, are people chasing after you because they want what you have or do they want you? And this becomes an issue with a lot of people that get successful because they no longer, most of these people that are into music and acting and everything, if they get successful, everybody has their hand out saying, you know, give me. The, the athlete who becomes successful and gets that multi-million dollar contract all of a sudden has more friends than they ever knew they had all with their hands out and because they've not learned how to handle it, they give, give away everything and then find out they have nothing and nobody cares that they gave them when they, when they had it and we see the prodigal son. Lots of friends while he has money and no friends when he, when he needs it. Pigs. And he's got pigs to take care of. And this is the way that life is without God. There is no satisfaction in anything that we have. Let's see, verse 11. For Myla, Tirzah, and Huga, and Nilka, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophenahad, were married to their father's brother's sons. And they were married into the families of the sons of Manasseh and the sons of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of the family of their father. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses unto the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho. So again, this kind of puts us right where we're at. They've been wandering around for 40 years. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land. They're across Jordan looking at Jericho. And we got a whole other book to go in, but you realize this next book of Deuteronomy is just the last message from Moses. It's going to take us months to get through this book, but it is one last sermon that takes him just a week or two to give to the people. It's a sermon? The entire book is Moses' last message to the children of Israel. It's basically, we would call it a sermon. It's his sermon saying, here's all of our history and here's where we're at. And it didn't take him long to deliver it and then he went off to die and Joshua takes him into the land of uh, the promised land. But the book of Deuteronomy is just one long, long sermon wow. written out. 36 chapters. 36 chapters, which technically, if we were just to read it out real quick, we could read it out in just a, you know, a, a short day, if we were just to read it from beginning to end, and that's what it was. It was just this last word from Moses. You're getting ready to go into the promised land. Here's what we've done. Here's where you've been. This is what we went through. Here's God's rules. And he reiterates all the rules of God real quick and says, go with God. Choose God. And we think about this. Most of these five, four books that we've read so far, we have Genesis, which covers the lar largest period of time because it covers almost 2,000 years. Uh, closer to 1500 but and then we've got the book of Exodus which covers just a mere year and a half two years because most of it is written while they're outside Mount Sinai you've got Leviticus which is taught, which is one book that was given while they were in Sinai less than a year's period of time the entire book of numbers is 40 years and most of it was just the couple months that it took to get from Sinai to the Promised Land and have them say, no, we don't want to go into the Promised Land. 
And then the rest of it is, the last half of the book is just them wandering around <laughs> a little bit. And then you get to the very end where they start making their conquest as they get ready to go in. It's about, 35 year, about five years in the last half of the book. And the book of Deuteronomy is just a couple weeks as, as Moses says goodbye and encourages them to follow God. It's a pretty amazing set of books. From Exodus to the end of Deuteronomy is 40 years. You know, covered. And this is one of the things I keep bringing out to people. When we're reading the scriptures, we have to keep in mind how much time goes by. Because we read these things and it's like, oh wow, what an exciting life. Look at all the stuff that's happening to them. Well, five books cover 40 years, so that's pretty good. The book of Joshua is going to cover 40 years. We get into the book of Judges, and we're covering hundreds of years in the span of that book. And usually it goes, the children did what was good in their eyes, and they got judged. God raised the judge up. They rule for 20 to 40 years. And eventually the people start doing what's good in their own eyes and get judged. And another judge is raised, he, rule, he or she rules for 20 to 40 years. And the people do what's bad in their eyes, and then another judge is raised up. How long between those times of judges? We don't really know. Probably a generation or two. So you're still talking about 40 to 80 years between judges. Yeah. And we kind of look at this book and say, wow, look how exciting life was back there for them. We look at the book of Acts. Acts covers about 60 years of history. And we go, well, not even 60 years. It's closer to only 40 years. And we look at it and say, wow, look how exciting life was. You know, it would say that Paul went in, and then we read someplace else. He spent three years there, and it's like we, they give us two incidents of what he did, and then he's on to the next place. And the only reason we know that he spent two years there is because he tells us someplace else, I spent two years there. Or occasionally, occasionally he says we spent two years there and then left. You know, and it would only record one or two events in his life. How many times do we as Christians get along and, well, serving God is really boring. I go a long time with nothing big going on in my life, and then something happens. Not unusual in the scriptures to have long periods where you're just serving God, going about your day-to-day -day business, and then God steps in and makes a change in your life for a little bit, and things get really exciting. And then you go back to a long period of status quo where you're trying to just keep following him and, and serving him on the promises that he's given you. Hannah asks for Samuel, gets Samuel, goes back home for five years, brings him back. And then that's the last we hear of her. And then we don't hear again of Samuel until he's nine or ten when he hears from God calling him. And then we jump another after that to when he's actually old enough to be the, the judge. And then it really gets exciting. We have a lot of his life in as he deals with Saul and David. But you know, we've got to keep in mind, a lot of times our walk with God is a long time of just obeying the last thing that we had him say to us and just being obedient. And then he steps in and makes our life exciting, stirs up the pot a little bit, and we go for some more time just wandering with him. If you read biographies, you see the same type of mentality. 
Christian biographies. Person grows up, usually doing bad things, and they get called by God. Then they go years, and then all of a sudden something happens in their life, and God does something miraculously, and then they'll go for years, and God will do something miraculous in their life again. Very rare is it just a constant stream of activity. Annie's book, The Hiding Place, that she loves so much. Yes, for about five years, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of things happening in their life. Before that, not much. After that, not much. And then after 30 years, you know, many years, she starts being used again in a certain way. You know, lots of time in between active points in time. And we sometimes get so bored with God and saying, God, why don't you do something? And God's saying, I will. I will. I've done it this way for all the people, and he'll do it in just the right time, at the right place, to make something happen. And our point is to make sure that we're ready when he steps in to make our life exciting. And some people have had some very exciting lives when you read these things. I think of David Wilkerson when, he's, when he goes out to New York and leads Nikki Cruz and them to the Lord. But you know, his big excitement was that one small piece of his life that he did something really big that drew all the attention. You read, you read what happened and you listen to his testimony after that, and it's pretty boring, because it's a t typical pastor having this, this event that brought some people in and this event that brought some people in, but never that huge, big thing that happened. If you've ever read uh, God's Smuggler and the story about Brother Andrew and all the different things he did as he smuggles Bibles, you got to realize that in between each one of these times, there was years getting ready for the next activity to bring Bibles in behind the Iron Curtain. It took years of a break to get over some of the things God had him do. But, but I'm just bringing this out because how often do we kind of look and say, God, what are you doing in my life? We need to mark what he's doing in our life and be ready for the next time he steps into our life and excites it and shakes it up. Because as long as we're alive, there's something out there that he's going to use us for. Sometimes it may be just to encourage others. Sometimes he may come in and really shake up our life and make it, make it exciting. And we look, how many times did God step into lives over the scriptures and through the biographies, and when does he touch a lot of these people? Toward their end of their lives? When they've learned a lot of lessons? You know, we think about somebody like Billy Graham who preaches to millions of people now. You know, he didn't start out, his first time he preached, he didn't preach to a million people. He probably, and I don't remember which one of them, it was probably just a little tiny church in the middle of nowhere that probably only had a couple hundred people maybe listening to him. And sometimes we get with God and say, God, I don't want these little things. I just want to be used by you. And God's saying, you need to be ready to be used by me. You need to be prepared. Can you imagine if you were Billy Graham and all of a sudden God just plopped you down in the middle of a million people and said, now preach this message? Heart attack, yeah. Most of us would probably have a heart attack. I'm not sure that I could handle standing in front of that big a crowd. The biggest crowd I've been in is 1,500. And that's a pretty good sized crowd. But I can't imagine being plopped down in the middle of a coliseum with 80,000 people in there plus all the ones that are on the watching you on, on screens and everything. God prepares us for the next step he's going to take us into. 
and we need to be willing to take these baby steps to be ready to do the next step. And it's the same thing in the business world. These guys don't come and just all of a sudden start a million dollar company. They start with one store, one factory, and then they build that factory and they build it and they build it and they end up getting the success of that building. God does the same thing with us. He doesn't throw us into the, the top of the, the top of the pool when we can't haven't proved that we can handle being at the top of the pool. Now, each step can be greater. Each step will be more used. It's amazing to me how God uses different people. I'm amazed at how many people listen to us online. Yeah. Now, to me, that's an amazing idea. Our little tiny church being listened to more online than it is in real life. Wondering how God is using these messages out in the world. Knowing how I've used some messages that I've pulled from other people. Wondering if some of them are being used the same way out there. And all because this church is supporting us being on the internet. Spent the money on these stupid little things that cost $600 a piece by the time you get done. And being saying, yes, we're going to spend that kind of money. Yes, we're going to spend the money to have the website and the materials it is to edit, the, edit these things. This is done by our church. And our church is reaching thousands of people each, each month not knowing what we have going on out there. Because nobody has sent us an email saying, you know, I'm using this or I'm learning or I got saved or, or anything else. We don't know how this is happening and how it's being used out there. God knows. And the reward will be for each person. I get the privilege of actually being the one that talks on it. But you all are the ones that support having it out there. And it's wonderful. And when we get to heaven, there may be people that come up to us and say, I got saved because of your website out there. Won't that be a grand thing, especially for some of us or some that had not had a lot of success witnessing to people and be able to say, all right, I had a little bit. I was the one that gave a little bit of money that kept it up there so that somebody got saved. And it's going to be amazing. The little things that we do that God is going to bless. I share with people, a lot of times people just look at our life and saying, I like the way that person lives. They, they have hope. They're not crushed by things coming in. And we may not realize how much of a testimony we are even without saying anything to people. Just because of the way we live our life. I used to love it when I worked in the restaurants and people would come up and say, how did you stay so calm during all that hectic rush? Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you for asking, Lee. Let me tell you all about my God. Because I was the boss. I couldn't tell them about God without them opening the door. But boy, once they opened the door, they got it. They got the gospel and they found out why I could stay calm in the middle of all hell breaking loose in a, in a, in a night. And if you've ever been a restaurant manager, you know how hard things can get on the middle of a Friday night when, when one little thing goes wrong. And all of a sudden, it's like a snowball from that point. And you're fighting, a, fighting catch up the rest of the night. And it can get hectic. And to be able to stay calm and people look at you and you've got a smile on your face and not a pasted artificial smile, but you are just staying calm in Christ. When you go through that devastating loss in your life and you don't end up in the bottom of a bottle or the bottom of the bottom of the hill and drugs and people look at you and say, how did you go through that? 
What is your strength that kept you from falling apart like I would have? Very important for us to be able to say, this is God. And we don't know the testimony that we have out there. If you talk to a lot of people, they'll tell you that a lot of times what really touched them was watching a Christian that they knew was a Christian go through something hard in their life and not fall apart. And that touches them. We don't know all the places where we've shared Christ with people. And I just want to encourage people. We do not know how our life has witnessed to people. How our life has been an epistle to people to show this is Jesus in a mighty way. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you. We ask, Lord, that you keep us. That you give us the opportunity to be a witness before you, even when we don't have to say words. And Lord, when we have the opportunity to speak words, give us the words to speak to present you in a very strong and mighty way. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.